So I'd like to begin tonight with a story that you may have heard. It's told in different forms. The way I heard it was that um, a Native American woman, first people, uh, uh, was asked toward the end of her life, Grandmother, how did you become so happy? How did you become so loved and so loving? How did you become so successful? How did you become so wise? What did you do? She paused, reflected, said, you know, I think it's because when I was young like you, I realized that in my heart were two wolves, one of love and one of hate. And I also realized that everything depended upon which one I fed each day. That's the story. It speaks to the presence of the wolf, or wolf pack, if you will, of hate, metaphorically speaking, uh, the capacity, even inclination in most people, certainly myself, toward envy or ill will, prejudice, discrimination, violence, even war. Second, very much to our purposes here, the story speaks to the lawful process of causes and effects we're always feeding one collection of tendencies or another, one wolf pack or another, moment by moment, which tendencies, which inclinations, which understandings will we feed? And which ones will we withdraw fuel from? Uh, the Buddha spoke often of fuel. Uh, his time 2,500 years ago, the fire ritual was very present in his culture. He also lived in a rural agrarian setting where nutriment or fertilizer of various kinds uh, was very important. And he used a lot of metaphors that had to do with what uh, fuel are you adding? Uh, What are you feeding? And in the language of modern experience-dependent neuroplasticity, neurons that fire together, wire together. The traditional saying is that your mind takes its shape or our minds take their shape from whatever they repeatedly rest upon, for better or worse. The modern update would be, uh, your brain takes its shape from what your mind repeatedly rests upon, for better or worse. And to preview an important point, it's one thing to have anger or sorrow or fear or envy or Um, self-criticism arise and be identified with it, stuck to it, hijacked by it, glued to that particular movie. It's a very different matter for it to arise and be held in a field of spacious open awareness, which is very much our practice here, with some quality of insight, at least from time to time, into the qualities of that experience, including its impermanence, its foaminess, uh, its insubstantiality. Uh, So fear not. Just because crud is arising doesn't mean it needs to uh, take us over. Everything has to do with our relationship to it and whether the material that arises, as the Buddha himself said, whether it invades the mind and remains. So from the standpoint of uh, practice, which is a real interest here, practice, what makes a difference, right? I find myself thinking about what in the world is going on in the brain of a Buddha and what kind of wolf pack did he feed and what did he withdraw nutriments from. 
Because if you hate the wolf of hate, you just feed the wolf of hate. What's going on in the brain of a Buddha? Because uh, certainly in terms of ordinary natural processes, whatever causes led to the effects uh, or maintained the beneficial effects of the Buddha's own awakening must have been present inside his own body. Otherwise, we're left with magic. Explanations outside the natural frame. Maybe he, in his own awakening, he did access something outside the natural frame of mind and matter, which includes all kinds of stuff, uh, in dark energy, uh, subtle experiences, all kinds of stuff, but that's considered the natural frame. That's the domain, if you will, of science, certainly to some extent. The Buddha may well have accessed something outside that, if, particularly if you read his own account of his own awakening um, in, a certain, in a certain way. But minimally, he walked, he talked, he lived, he had pain, he had joy, uh, he made choices, um, he ate, he slept. He had a body, he had a functioning nervous system. What in the world were the causes inside that body, um, headquartered uh, by the brain between his ears? Uh, What was happening there that supported, enabled, um, and maintained his own awakening? And what can we learn from that? How can we reverse engineer, if you will, the brain of a Buddha or our own brains when we're in a really good zone? We're steady, we're clear, things are happening, but there's this quality of calm, strength, contentment, and loving kindness in our hearts. Or maybe what's going on uh, in the brains or body of beings uh, who are a little further along the path of awakening than us. We can look at them and wonder, how do you do that? What's going on there? That's a question I hope to explore with you tonight, one particular part of it especially. A way into this inquiry is to think in terms of the Buddha's Four Noble Truths, his summary account of what he was trying to teach, the essence of wise view or right understanding that begins, in most accounts, the Noble Eightfold Path. It's been said that the Buddha was something like a doctor, a physician who observed an ailment, suffering, diagnosed its cause, in a word craving that I'll come back to, The word in Pali is tanha, whose origins are in thirst. Come back to that. And then he said, you know, it's also possible when the causes of this ailment end, or at least reduce, the ailment ends or reduces as well. That's the third noble truth, the cessation of the causes of craving, or the causes of suffering, rather. And then there's a path, there's a treatment plan, that if you follow it, and also increasingly embody it as an expression of your own progress on the path, then it will really work for you. Or a different version of it would be to think of the Buddha as a scientist. He observes a phenomenon, human suffering. He hypothesizes its cause, craving. He infers a corollary that if those causes change, so does the phenomenon. And then he moves into the engineering mode to figure out how to change those causes to help being suffer less. So we have suffering. Buddhism, in many ways, is fundamentally about processes and causes. Okay? All processes have causes inside the natural frame. So he says, the cause of suffering is craving. We could ask tonight, what is the cause of craving? Why do we crave? And by 
altering the causes of craving, how can we come to the end of our craving and therefore the end of our suffering for our own sake and that of other beings? Now, in terms of what craving is, it's a word that's imperfect. You might think of it as drivenness, sometimes clinging, attachment, different words like that used. There's a sequence that's very psychological in the so-called chain of dependent origination in which there is contact. In modern language of psychology, there is some sort of stimulus. There is some of the beginnings of a mental event. Second, there is the feeling tone, or in modern psychology, it would be the language of the hedonic tone of experience. The Buddha said, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. There's no end to contact. There's no end to the feeling tone. But we don't yet have suffering. It's just unpleasant, or just pleasant, or just neutral. Or it might have other qualities, which I'll get to a little bit further on. But it's not inherently a problem. But then trouble begins with the third step in the sequence, craving. Contact, feeling, craving, and then clinging, which is a more elaborated, built-out, manifested, stabilized expression of craving, and then dot, 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 suffering, rebirth, rinse and repeat, and do it all over again. So the question a lot from a practical standpoint is how to install a kind of shock absorber, or how to alter causes in that transition from the ongoing hedonic tone, or feeling tone it's called, uh, in Buddhism, or it's been translated as feeling tone, uh, between contact and feeling in craving itself. From the standpoint of, uh, to kind of bring it down to plain English, we're tracking what's relevant to us continually. If it's unpleasant, we want to avoid it. It's painful, avoiding pain. If it's pleasurable, we want to approach it. And if it's neutral, meh, we want it to hurry up and get happy. So we have classic psychological notions. Avoiding, avoiding pain, avoiding the unpleasant, approaching the pleasant, okay? sometimes described as grasping. Yeah. To bring it into our own experience, you might ask yourself, well, what is it we crave? And the Buddha identified four major things people crave. Uh, it's not a complete list, uh, but these are the big four, and you might be mindful of these here and now. The first, most obviously, is sense pleasure or the resistance to pain. That's a form of craving. Craving for the ending of the unpleasant, as well as craving for the continuing of the pleasant. It's valenced differently, but it's the same kind of fundamental process. So sense pleasures. You can watch that arise here. You know, Um, yeah. This is unpleasant. I want it to end. Can't they ring the darn bell? You know, this is pleasant. I want it to continue. Uh, I watched uh, some deer outside the teachers' area and staff area, and uh, I, I found myself wanting them to keep being so Disney-like, Bambi-like. Oh, the deer! You know, whatever. We tend to want it to stick around. Second main uh, object of craving is views, or application of attachment. Stuff we get attached to are views. I know that well. Uh, it's especially troubling if you're paid to have the right views. You know, it's. It tends to really get you. Uh, so, um, you know, and just think of all the little forms of righteousness, belief, 
they ought to do it like this, they shouldn't do it like that, you're wrong, I'm right, oh no, I was wrong, you were right, view, of various kinds. Uh, then we have um, what the Buddha called rites and rituals. Uh, he was critiquing a fair amount of empty performance of rituals of his time. And he was saying that what really matters is not the mere performance or paying a priest to perform some ritual for you, but what's in your own heart. What's your own intention? What's your own state of mind in relationship to what you do? And a modern update of that, um, I think, is around routines or, in my own case, how orderly the kitchen ought to be compared to my wife, who is like a built-in entropy generator, endlessly creating disorder wherever she goes, while blessing others with lots of love. It's really maddening, you know. But anyway, if she were a jerk, it'd be easier to, make, to be righteous about it. But anyway, um, rites and rituals. And you might think about that. You know, certain ways you have of doing things. You know, you, you can't believe they, they left the sink like that in the bathroom or... Um, you know, there really ought to be a different retreat schedule. This other thing you did was a certain way. And I'm not talking about a kind of wise discrimination, but a certain attachment, okay? You can feel it. Like, I think of it as mindfulness of mustness, mindfulness of internal insistence, you know, gotta. That's the hallmark or tension. That's mindfulness of the feeling in the body of this quality, which I'll be exploring more with you. And then the fourth classical, uh, classic, if you will, uh, target of attachment is me, myself, and I, the self. The way I def- you know, defined it fairly narrowly previously, attachment to my positions, my possessions, what do you think about me, um, you know, my view, me, right? Okay. Okay? So it's fairly familiar territory. What do we do about it? It's important to track the distinction between, in Pali, tanha, which is thirst, problematic desire, let's just call it craving, broadly defined, from subtle to gross, and distinguish that from uh, what's called chanda in Pali, wholesome desire. We practiced wholesome desire earlier today in Anushka's practice, the wish that beings be happy, uh, expressions of kindness. Uh, I did that with you yesterday, the wish that beings don't suffer, with compassion. Um, Wholesome aspirations towards social justice. Uh, We wish that others flourish. Uh, I wish that children be fed. That's a wholesome desire. Uh, I might wish for my friend that she fully manifests or express her own capacities in healthy ways. She has talent. She has abilities to be used one kind or another. Well, in the same way as it would be wholesome to wish that for my friend, it would be wholesome to wish that for myself. If I wish for my friend to find healing her trauma, his wound, his loss. Similarly, chanda, wholesome to wish that for ourselves. The exploration of what is tanha and what is chanda and how we can tend to tip into tanha around what starts as chanda, that is an interesting exploration. But I just want to call out that desire itself is not the problem. It's the kind of desire, you know. What do we desire? Um, do we pursue it with whole, do we do we Desire wholesome ends. Do we pursue them with wholesome means without attachment to the result? That's really the key question. So then, tanha itself, craving itself. What causes craving? And here I'd like to think about some of the offerings from neuropsychology. 
especially in the framework of biological evolution. It's interesting that uh, many, many people, I think, are very good at practicing mindfulness of the body, but they don't really explore the implications of embodied living because it is bodies who crave and it is bodies who suffer. Right? We're not so much mindful of body as body full of mind. This body, moment to moment, is producing this experience that you're having right now. All the causes streaming through us to make this moment of consciousness, as best we know, their final common pathway is through this body up into the nervous system headquartered in the brain. Three pounds of tofu-like tissue between the ears. 1.1 trillion cells, about 100 billion of them neurons, as many neurons in your head as stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Connected on average with about 5,000 other neurons, giving us an internal intranet of several hundred trillion little microprocessors, each one of those synaptic junctions, and lots of other information processing happening as well. It's sometimes called the enchanted loom, weaving moment to moment this moment of consciousness. So, in terms of grounding the causes of craving in truly embodied life, waking down, not just waking up, as Samuel Bonder puts it, craving in the framework of neuropsychology is a drive state. It's a drive state. And it's based fundamentally on an experience that has invaded the mind and remained of deficit or disturbance or both. Something missing, a lack not enoughness, need more, or something disturbed, wonky, imbalanced, not right. Squirrels crave, lizards crave, monkeys crave, mice crave, humans crave. Craving is a very powerful engine to keep, um, um, to live to see the sunrise, to keep our babies alive, to pass on genes that pass on genes. Craving is highly adaptive. In many ways, we evolved to suffer and crave, in part, to survive and pass on genes that passed on genes. So it's, it's natural to crave. It doesn't mean it's problematic, but it's certainly natural to crave. So we ask ourselves, deficit and disturbance in terms of what? Well, needs. We have needs. So when we feel like our needs are not being fully met, or there's a disturbance about meeting our needs, we naturally tip in to some level of craving, subtle or gross. Tracking, this is the way to think about it. So then we become mindful of our needs, and what are they, and how are they being met, and you know what's going on about that. Here too, I think evolutionary neuropsychology is useful. As a very common framework, It is said that animals of any kind, including big complicated animals like us, have three fundamental needs, broadly defined, for safety, satisfaction, and connection. A lot fits under those headings. I think there are subtle needs, if you will, of various kinds. They don't fit neatly into that framework. Frameworks are not right or wrong. They're useful or not so useful. But I think it's a common framework. So we have needs for safety that we manage broadly through avoiding Arms. Okay. We have needs for satisfaction, um, and our cousins, the lizards, 
the mice and the monkeys. We have needs for satisfaction that are managed through approaching rewards, approaching pleasure, the pleasant. And we have needs for connection uh, that are managed through attaching to others. Our needs for safety are signaled by the unpleasant hedonic tone in Pali, the Vedna of experience. It's a signal. It's a primal signal. You know, this is unpleasant. Alarm bells ring. Uh, Fear, anger, you know, follow. What will I do about this? Or this is pleasant. Opportunity. Uh, Or it could be pleasant. I imagine it could be pleasant. Aha, I'm going to pursue that reward. I'm going to approach that reward. Go after it. Or what? What's, what's the Vedna that activates or single, sing, signals? What's the hedonic tone that activates or signals a need for connection? Personally, I think a fourth feeling tone, a fourth Vedna, a fourth hedonic tone is evolving in us. The sense of things as relatedness, or the word I use personally is heartfelt. You don't need to believe this, but I find it useful in my own Um, mindfulness practices to track something that is relevant to me that's not merely unpleasant or merely pleasant or just neutral. It actually matters, right? But I wouldn't call it merely pleasant or unpleasant. It's a kind of relatedness. I'm not particularly moving away from it because it's unpleasant or moving toward it because it's pleasant. I'm just abiding in it, and it matters to me that I am. So you might pay attention, if you like, to what is it that activates your own attaching systems, your own movement in the field of relatedness. Is it merely pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? Or is it more emergent, more complex than that? I just kind of offer that. And as a model maker, I like the you know, systematic clarity of this idea. So we have our three needs, which relate to the three-stage evolution of the brain. Inside each one of us is an enormous zoo. And as you go down the brain, what's called the neuroaxis, you go back in time. You know, Stone Age, hominid, primate, mammal, mouse, lizard, all the way down to, you know, the mosquito or the little tiny worm. Uh, I read somewhere that we share 20% of our DNA with bananas, which helps put things in perspective. I'm speaking here only of the animal kingdom. So again, not to get all complicated, but to just use this as an exploration. Can I tune into my, as it were, inner lizard, who is primarily organized around safety, because that's the most primal need of all. Arguably, the first two emotions to evolve in terms of their neural architecture or basis were disgust and fear, which both have to do with primal threats. Anger, probably, soon after. Um, and then we have, of course, the primate, uh, primate, the mammalian subcortical areas that are very good at pursuing reward because mammals are warm-blooded and can hunt at night. Also, they can function in a wider range of environments. Um, also, with the development, increasingly, of emotion, they're able to track reward better. And also, mammals can do what's called sustained pursuit. Crocodiles are fast for the first 50 feet or so, but a dog can keep running. A rat can keep moving. Right? Um, and then, of course, we have the primate human cortex. The brain has tripled in volume in the last several million years. Most of it's about relationship. 
and arguably most of the evolution of the brain in the last several million years has been about the survival benefits of love, sociability, sociality, broadly defined. So there's a loose relationship between these three needs, safety, satisfaction, and connection, and the three floors, if you will, of the house of the brain. Personally, it helps me to keep it simple, to realize that deep inside me is a little lizard, a little mouse, and a little monkey. So what do we do about all this? Why does it matter? If we experience in the moment, or a squirrel does, or a zebra does, or a gorilla, probably a dolphin, if we experience in the moment, in our core, that our need for safety is flooded, we tend to, or we experience in our core that our need for satisfaction is not being met, or we experience in our core that our need for connection is not met, we tend to tip into a state of craving. Uh, This is your brain on the second noble truth. In other words, because there's that sense of deficit or disturbance inside, the sympathetic wing of the nervous system fires up, gets hot in terms of fight or flight, or the parasympathetic, the more ancient wing of the autonomic nervous system moves into a freeze state, the kind of human equivalent of playing dead. In either case, generally, long-term projects in the body are put on hold, systems are disturbed, Mother Nature's plan is for episodes of stress to end quickly, one way or another. And they usually do in the wild. And then there's kind of a restoration of equilibrium. And in terms of the mind, when we're in this state, I call it the red zone or the reactive setting, that's that's designed to keep us alive. It's adaptive, particularly for short periods. Um, The mind is colored in terms of our safety needs with, I use the word fear. The Buddha used the word hatred. Hatred is one of the three poisons or one of the three fuels of the fires of suffering in terms of earlier translations of his teaching. Um, Fear. You could say hatred, fear, anger, helplessness. Or in terms of our needs for satisfaction when we're in the red zone, when we're trapped in the second noble truth of craving. Uh, In that moment, there's a quality of frustration, is the single word I use as an umbrella term. The Buddha used greed. It's a more traditional term. We might add frustration, disappointment, or drivenness, or addiction, related to satisfaction. And then if we're in the red zone, we're in the reactive mode, we're living in tanha, brain on craving, in terms of our relational needs, What's the single word for that form of suffering? I use the word heartache. Other words like envy or inadequacy, worthlessness, the social emotions of shame or embarrassment or unworthiness. Or um, technically in psychology called narcissistic injury, feeling wounded, rejected, discounted. Or tipping into aggression, ill will, um, punishment, cruelty, uh, sadism toward others. That's the brain in the red zone. On the other hand, when in the moment an animal, a zebra, mouse, monkey, lizard, human, experiences a basic sense of enoughness, fullness rather than deficit, balance rather than disturbance, in terms of these needs, and you can just watch it moment to moment, 
You know, I kind of watch my own inner uh, panel. It's like I'm, I'm old enough to think about um, amplifiers with those lights moving up or down, you know, think green or red, and a lot of stuff's usually going on. You know, like any system, it's not exact, it's not either or, but you can tell, you know, this is what it's like when, man, I'm really in the red zone, all right, in one flavor or another. Or on the other hand, this is what it's like when I'm just more mellow. I'm reaching for the salt, there's no problem. There's so many moments, I think, in ordinary life where there's really no problem, and we kind of don't notice them even. There's not that much activation of uh, red zone suffering. When we're in that mode, when there's a sense of fullness rather than deficit or balance rather than disturbance, in terms of our needs for safety, the word I use (coughs) is there's a pervading (coughs) quality of peace. Peace as opposed to fear. Calm strength. In terms of our needs for satisfaction, a pervading sense of contentment. What a lovely word, contentment, rather than frustration or disappointment or drivenness or greed. And in terms of relatedness, our needs for connection, I think it's a mind pervaded by love, broadly defined. I'm just using single word placeholders, umbrella terms. covers a lot of ground. Love flowing in or love flowing out is still love. Feeling cared about in various ways coming in, feeling caring in various ways, flowing out. We don't have a choice. The Buddha did not have a choice about whether he had a brainstem, a subcortex, and a cortex. He didn't have a choice about the fact that he still needed safety. He still needed to avoid terrible pain. Um, he would, you know, He didn't have a choice about needing to eat, about experiencing some basic forms of reward. He didn't have a choice. We don't have a choice about our needs for relationship, you know, sociality of one kind or another, even if we live fairly solitary lives. Um, we don't have a choice about the prepared nature of our, our embodied, animal, real existence. We don't have a choice about its capacities and even tendencies to tip green or red. Right? Our only real choice is which mode we're operating in. And what is our relationship to challenges to our core needs for, uh, for safety, satisfaction, and connection? What do we do when things arise? So how can we gradually condition our own minds? How can we shift inside ourselves in an embodied way, fundamentally represented inside our own body, so that increasingly we can deal with the challenges of life to ourselves or to others, challenges loosely related to safety or satisfaction or connection. How can we deal with that with um, a heart, uh, a core that is centered increasingly unconditionally, not based on external conditions, centered unconditionally in a fundamental sense of inner peace, contentment, and love, even as we deal with the hard things in life? How do we actually do that? I think the essence of Buddhism is this fulcrum, this tipping point between the second and the third noble truths, most fundamentally. How do we actually do it for real? This has taken me into a consideration of cultivation. I think there are multiple ways in the Dharma uh, to help a person increasingly stabilize with a mind uncolored by craving. 
or if craving does arise, it's held in a spaciousness. It's surrounded by shock absorbers. So it does not invade the mind and remain. What I'm going to offer here right now as we, you know, in our last 10 minutes or so, 15 minutes or so, is just one way to do it. But it, it makes, it's a way that makes a lot of sense to me. I think it's consistent with Buddha Dharma. And um, it's been personally very useful. And I've seen it be very useful for other people. Our opportunity is that if we repeatedly experience authentically in one version or another that we that our needs for safety are met. In other words, it's interesting. I've done a lot of rock climbing. I've been in many situations that were hazardous, but I didn't feel upset about it. A certain amount of anxiety might arise, but I wasn't caught by it. My relationship to it was not dominated by craving. Similarly, I've been in situations where I've worked hard, I've pursued goals, or um, I've enjoyed pleasures, and uh, they were there. It was very pleasant. But my relationship to it was not colored by craving, by a sense of disturbance or not enoughness. Um, Same with relationships. Things come up. Sometimes uh, need to speak truth to power, to be strong, to be assertive. Uh, to ask for what we need, to be brave enough to speak from the heart. Uh, Tied for first place is the absolute scariest thing I've done in my entire life is when I said to someone for the first time in conscious memory, I was 15, uh, I was my my first girlfriend, I told her I loved her. So scary. I can feel her right now. You know, how do we enable ourselves to do that? If we repeatedly, in authentic ways, register a basic sense of peacefulness or calm strength or that we're actually all right right now or that we're protected or that we can relax, that will, because neurons that fire together, wire together, gradually build up resources inside. We will feed those wolves inside so that when challenges come to us, they land on a deep internalization 10,000 times, 10 seconds at a time, or even fewer, a deep internalization of arrestedness in a sense of calm, strength, and inner peace. If we also, in terms of satisfaction, repeatedly register wholesome experiences of gratitude or gladness or accomplishment, goal attainment, one kind or another, success in various things, or wholesome pleasures, or register again and again and again the simple enoughness of phenomenology itself, the almost overwhelming enoughness of experience when you just kind of open wide to it. So we register that again and again and again. Then challenges land on us. They meet um, a prepared, deeply internalized felt sense of enoughness already, contentment already. It's nice to wish for more, to enjoy more, but it doesn't activate an underlying latent sense of frustration or disappointment. Also in relationships, as we repeatedly internalize a sense of being um, included by others. I think of five major aspects of being cared about. Included by others, any port in a storm. Included by others, seen by others, appreciated by others, respected, valued, chosen, appreciated by others. Liked, the root of the word, as we've talked about, for metta, loving kindness, is friendliness. 
You know, the people have a kind of friendliness coming our way. There's a fondness of us or a goodwill toward us. I think of the guys in the deli across the street from where I work. Uh, we joke about sports, go the Giants, San Francisco Giants, and all the rest of that. We're not cut from the same cloth in a lot of ways. We, we're not best buddies. But there is a genuine friendliness there. You know, they would go out of their way to be helpful to me. They wouldn't go a mile out of their way, but they'd at least go 100 yards. Um, and then, of course, the more we internalize a sense of being loved, being cherished, you know, being held in the heart of others in a deep way. Similarly, the more we internalize repeated experiences, 10,000 times, 10 seconds at a time, of compassion, of loving kindness for others, of seeing the being behind their eyes, seeing the good in other people, especially the ones that aggravate us, you know, dropping into and knowing what it's like to uh, wish people well no matter what, while still being assertive and protective of our own needs and those we care about. And of course, accessing uh, love for others. The more and more and more we actually register and internalize and receive those experiences, the more it builds up resources inside so that when your children leave home, as we've experienced, my wife and I, or people are unkind, or uh, they're dismissive, or things happen, or old material from childhood is reactivated, or fresh material from yesterday or this morning is reactivated, it lands on us in a way that's much more able to manage it without tipping into craving about it, without getting rattled by it, without being disturbed by it. So from a practical standpoint, the invitation here is to allow oneself, and this is very interesting to me as a Buddhist kind of guy, um, how do you internalize transient ephemeral experiences that we should not cling to? Right? How How do you do that? And how it is experienced is it's kind of a receptive intimacy with your own experience in this moment. A kind of showing up in the body for the experience, tracking it. What's it like? And then in a way that has a kindness to it, much as you would for a friend, you know, a child or a friend, like, let's slow that down. Wait a second. What did you just say? You know, you were feeling right here or your boss said what to you or you had this success or this win or something happened, let's, let's stay with it a little bit longer. Let's, let's help it last. Let's protect it. Let's create sanctuary for it rather than rushing on to the next thing out of hunger for more stimulation or a sense of undeservingness. Uh, we're not allowed to stay with it. Um, to kind of keep it around. Neurons that fire together do so fairly rapidly, but probably there's a minimum <coughs> threshold for any kind of experience to transfer from short-term buffers to long-term storage, probably at least a few seconds. And then there's this technical term in neuroscience, MOBETA. In other words, more episodes of wholesome learning, wholesome internalization, right? wholesome installation. Um, and then in episodes, MOBETA, more depth of engagement, more receptivity to it, more feltness in the body, more... Uh, more sense of its personal relevance, uh, you know, opening to it even wider and wider, really absorbing it, helping it land without clinging to it. It's a really interesting practice. 
to, for example, if there you are in meditation and there's an opening into something that feels like a next step or a good place, or you hear a word or get a teaching and it, it rings true, in that moment is an opportunity for learning, for growth, for internalization. Otherwise, it's simply a momentarily pleasant experience that just washes through the brain like water through a sieve. With the brain, as you may know, that's designed to overlearn from negative experiences and underlearn from positive ones. That's its negativity bias, which I call, we have a brain that's like Velcro for the bad, but Teflon for the good. Right? What we can do, though, with mindful practice, with mindful cultivation, is to turn that around and develop over time a mind-brain process that's increasingly like Teflon for the bad and Velcro for the good. It's really okay to allow the wholesome to land, to take root. It's okay to fertilize it, to protect it. I think sometimes people are really afraid somehow of opening to or receiving what would feel wholesomely beneficial and taking it in, as if that would be egoic or some form of clinging. Yes, there are pitfalls in this practice. There are also major pitfalls in not internalizing the beneficial experiences that are actually occurring that we just let go right on by. We often don't notice good facts, beneficial, wholesome opportunities, a rose, a smile, relief, a bullet dodged, sun rising, insight landing. We don't notice the good facts. Or if we notice them, we don't feel very much, if anything at all. Shrug, right? Or even if we notice the good fact and we feel something, we let ourselves feel it, do we actually receive it into ourselves? Do we have the kind of humility to slow it down, to let it land? For me, systematically, kind of moving to a finish here, I I use the metaphor of repeatedly petting the lizard, feeding the mouse, and hugging the monkey. Again and again and again. Especially the lizard. Because our safety needs are fundamental. And as you go back down the brain, back in time, neuroplasticity decreases. In other words, the more primal needs for safety, often disturbed through trauma, um, need a lot of padding gradually for those structures to change or function to change down there. I grew up with lizards in Southern California. I like lizards. So I invite you to explore this in your own practice. Just simply tracking. More craving, less craving. Why? You know, or work backwards. In the moment, there's something disturbed. There's anxiety arising. There's irritation arising. There's the wish for things to be different arising. Hmm. Mindful curiosity. Hmm. What's the craving? What's the the root? What's the engine of this disturbance? Tracing it back. And then ask yourself again and again, do I really need to crave this? Because most craving, if you actually look closely, has no real basis. They're in the moment. There's actually no deficit or disturbance. Much of our craving... I call it, I think there are three kinds of craving. I think there's actual sense of deficit or disturbance inside, and then we tip into the red zone about it. 
Much of the time, though, and you can watch it, everything's fine and you're still anxious, right? There's this trickle of anxiety or irritability. You're not yet irritated, but you really could get irritated easily or, uh, you know, really worried, right? Or everything's fine, you have plenty to eat, everything's okay, and your mind is looking for something new to want, right? Foraging, in a sense, inside your own consciousness. Or everything's fine in the relational field. You know, you have friends, whatever, but there's something unsettled there. Yeah, you liked me yesterday, but what do you think about my book today? You know, or, um, you know, you feel solid in your relationship, but yet you're still uneasy and you keep tracking. Are we okay? You know, how's it going? Right? I think of that as delusional craving. There's no actual basis for it. And it's really interesting to observe. And in the observing of it, often there can be a release of it. The subtlest form of craving, um, you can be aware of it when you're very kind of dialed in, I think, in terms of mindful awareness. And you can see there's a tendency in our ordinary relationship, our conventional relationship to experience, to continually want to sort of hold on to experience as it streams on by, to make sense of it, to manage it, to operate upon it, to know it. And um, the undoing of that increasingly is to be willing to really just sort of not know and relax and open out into awareness at the you know, endlessly emergent edge of now. I think of consciousness as we sit at the edge of a waterfall with experience streaming by, and we're continually trying to grab it and hold on to it. And this subtle form of craving can be increasingly released with a willingness to just not know, not know. Suzuki Roshi says that enlightenment is letting go of this moment while growing into the next one. You know, continually like that. That's the subtlest form of craving at all. So I invite you into mindfulness of craving. This is a lot about the third foundation of mindfulness, fundamentally, but in general. More or less craving. And what causes craving? To rise and to fall. And can you be with the pleasant, the unpleasant, the neutral, and, if you will, the heartfelt, without tipping into trouble about it? As Upandita said... The purpose of practice is to expand the range of experiences in which we are free. If we're completely relaxed and someone's brushing our hair and feeding us cookies and painting our toenails, I've never had the toenail part, um, you know, uh, yeah, that's pretty easy to be equanimous in. But can we uh, expand our fundamental, increasingly unconditional, not based on external conditions, sense of uh, deep peace and contentment and love? Uh, a mind in which, you know, hatred cannot arise, greed cannot arise, um, if you will, heartache cannot arise. Can we do that in increasingly challenging circumstances? Right. That's a key question. And then last, I, I want to leave you with a quotation from the Buddha, um, or at least it is said that he said. He said, think not lightly of good, saying, it will not come to me. Drop by drop is the water pot filled. Likewise, the wise one fills oneself with good, gathering it little by little, fills oneself with good. Most of our opportunities are just the size of a drop. Five seconds here, 20 seconds there, just protecting, receiving, staying with, Letting in, registering the good news, 
of the experience, a moment, not a life changer, but drop by drop, 10,000 times, feeding various wholesome, beneficial wolves, one after the other, we find our way to freedom for our own sake and that of all beings. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.